were living, you know, they were partying, and they were just saying, yeah, we're going to be dead tomorrow, so why not party? So again, they went up to the roofs, and they started to celebrate. And he says here, notice in, in verse 2, why, he says, a tumultuous city, a joyous city, question mark, you know? And he says, what's, why are you so joyous? They were going to die. But Isaiah says, not by weapons of war, but by starvation and disease resulting from the military blockade. Verses 3 and 4. All of your rulers have fled together. <clears throat> they are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from, uh, from afar. Therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. Isaiah says here, all of your leaders have taken off. They've surrendered without a fight. The people tried to get away too, but they were captured as well. He says, and, he, and that's why he says, you know what? Just leave me alone. Don't try to comfort me. Let me cry for my people, that is the people of Israel, as I watch them being destroyed. It seems like many of the rulers, probably city officials, after they were surrounded by the Assyrians, tried to get away. But they were caught and they were tied up. And so Isaiah is really heartbroken at what he sees going on here. It was a national disaster. Their destruction seemed so obvious and there would be no way out. They were surrounded. The people are on the roof. They're having a good time. They're living it up like there is no tomorrow. They're having a good time. And Isaiah can see the destruction that's coming. And he's just crying. People say, you know, they say, oh, that's okay, Isaiah, you know. And, 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 you know but he says, hey, don't try to comfort me. He's grieving because of the destruction that's going to take place. Isaiah warned his people about the judgment that was coming, but they didn't repent. They, and they received God's judgment because he cared so much for them. He was hurting. He was grieving with them when he saw their punishment. And he mourned deeply for the people. And sometimes people that we love and care for, they just don't want our advice. They just don't want our help. So they suffer the very thing that we tried to warn them about. And when they don't, and when we do, you know, when they suffer those things that we say, hey, look, you know what? But... They don't take your advice. And so we grieve for them. Why? Because we care for them. And you know what? God expects us to be involved with others. And sometimes it might involve suffering with them. Verse 5 now. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountain. Isaiah says, oh, what a day of just overwhelming defeat, confusion, and terror. Notice what it says, though, in verse 5. It's brought by who? By the Lord God. It's brought by the Lord God on the valley of vision, Israel. The walls of Jerusalem have been broken down, and cries of death are heard from the mountains. People are running to the mountains to hide. It's a bad day of trouble. It's a day of total chaos. Verses 6 through 8. Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. 
Isaiah says, hey, the Elamites are the archers. In other words, the Elamites, they're carrying bows and arrows. They're coming with their chariots, and they're coming with their chariots and, and their chariot drivers. The men of Kerr, they hold up their shields. Chariots fill your beautiful valleys, and the drivers attack your gates. Judah's defenses have been taken away. You run to the armory for your weapons. Elam and Kerr were under Assyrian rule. The whole Assyrian army, including the puppet leaders in the attack against Jerusalem, were there. Now, the army in Jerusalem was built by Solomon with cedar trees from the forest of Lebanon. That's why the army was called here the House of the Forest. It was an army, uh, I'm sorry, an army that was built uh, out of uh, cedar trees. Thus, it was called the House of the Forest. You see, when they went there, that, that shows they were trusting in their own power, in their weapons, rather than trusting in the Lord. Isaiah is saying that these valleys around Jerusalem will soon be covered with the tents of the enemies. He says the Assyrian troops are going to be arriving soon. The, valley is going to be, the valleys are going to be full of them. And they're going to surround Jerusalem and they're going to cut off their supplies. The people know the Assyrian forces were on the way and they knew that war was inevitable. War was a sure thing. And yet they don't seem to be really concerned. Verses 9 and 10. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. He says you inspect the places where the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. You store up water in the lower pool. You check out the houses and you tear some of them down so that you can use some of the stones from those houses to strengthen those places where the walls were broken down. So Isaiah tells us what the people tried to do to defend the city. First, it says they strengthened the broken down walls. How? By tearing down some of the existing houses. And when they tore those existing houses down, they took some of the materials, the stones from those houses, to patch up the wall. Then in the northern part of the city, there was a spring, and the water poured into the pool of Siloam. Now this spring and the little stream that came from it, they were open. You could see it. So what they did was cover over the top of this stream, so when the Assyrians came, they wouldn't know that the spring, uh, the spring and the stream was there. You see, one of the things that the enemy, enemy armies would do would go in, they not only would cut off their supplies, but they'd cut off water to the city. Again, as we know, water you know, is needed for survival. So this spring and this pool was open, so what they did, they covered the top of it so that the Assyrians couldn't see that they had water going to the city. So uh, they covered it, where it came inside the city, uh, again, giving the water inside the city. Verse 11. You also made a reservoir between two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it or made it long ago. Isaiah says, you know, he says, between the city walls, you built this pool for water from the old pool. But you know what? You never asked for help from the one who did all of this. You never thought of the one who planned this long ago. Isaiah says, did you ever stop to think who it was who put this spring there in the first place? Haven't you looked to God? 
This is Isaiah's main complaint. He says, you guys are trusting in everything you can do to defend yourself. But you're not trusting in God. You're not looking to God. And you know what? This is such a common thing today. How often we many times do the same thing. You know, we, we, we go to others, we, 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 we put our trust in man, in, in, in you know, banks or whatever it might be to get us out of the difficulty that we're in. But our first one that we go to isn't, is not often the Lord. And in Proverbs, 11, uh, Proverbs um, it, it tells us it's better to trust in the Lord. I'm sorry, it's Psalm 118.8. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord to put confidence in princes. But you see, that's what God's people were doing. That's exactly what they were doing. They were trusting in man. They were trusting in other nations. They were trusting in other people. They were taking the things that God created and tried to hide them so that the enemy couldn't see them. They were using what God created. But, but not even, they, they weren't, even though they were using the things that God created, they weren't aware, they weren't conscious or mindful of God. They weren't really looking to God as being their source of help and their strength. David said in Psalm 59, 9, God is my defense. He's our defense, our refuge, our fortress, our place of protection. He's the one that we should run to because he's the one who will defend you. But we need to remember to let him be our defense. Because when you try to defend yourself, you know what? The Lord will sit back and, and he'll let you go at it. But you know what? It will always turn out to be disastrous. But if you will trust in the Lord, he will be your defense. He'll be your shield. And he'll never let you down when everybody else will. So Isaiah's complaint was that the people were doing all of this planning. They were doing all of this strategizing. But they weren't seeking God during their time of danger. It says that they opened the armory or the house of the forest in Jerusalem. Again, they were looking to these things for their strength. They were looking to the weapons for their strength rather than looking to God for their refuge and their strength. God, as it says in Psalm 46, 1, is a very present help in time of trouble. Verse 12. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. At this particular time, God says, hey, people, weep and mourn. The baldness, he told them to shave their heads. It was a sign of sorrow for their sins. He told the people to wear sackcloth to show, the, to show their repentance. And God was hoping that these circumstances that he brought, notice back in verse 5, it says he brought this upon them. So he was hoping these circumstances that God brought upon them would cause them to turn to him. And in reading verse 5, it seems that God often uses trials and difficult situations in our life to drive us to him. And a lot of times, you know, when Satan uses certain circumstances to, to, to bring us to our knees, Satan will come in and say, oh, I guess you can't really trust in God. You, know, you can't really believe in the word of God. You know, you must have done something wrong or God's angry with you. 
or you failed him somehow. But again, that, that's not truth. You know, maybe, it, maybe sometimes it is the cause, but again, sometimes God will use, you know, difficult times, again, to, to, to drive us to him, to get us to go to him. And many times he has to go, to, he resorts to difficult circumstances because sometimes it takes everything that God can allow in our life for us to go to him. Sometimes we have to allow things to get so bad in our life that we get so low that, that all we can do is look up. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've gone through certain situations and, and, and circumstances that forced you to your knees. But God says, you know, that's, that's the only way I could get you to come, to get you to, to, to come to me and, and to pray. The Lord wants us to come to him. He wants us to call upon him. And I believe that if we call upon him, that we could avoid a lot of these difficult circumstances in our life. In Jeremiah 33, God said, call on me or call to me. I mean, you can almost hear his plea in his voice. Please call to me. I want to show you my, how, how, my mighty power. I want to answer you. I want to show you great and mighty things, things that you don't know, things that you wouldn't believe I could do. In 2 Chronicles 13, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we see again some, some support for this. It says at times, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, God says, at times I might shut up the heavens that, so, that no rain falls. Notice, he stops the rain. And he does it here, and, and we hear about California going through a drought. Did God stop the rain? Has he shut up the heavens so that no rain falls? He says, or I command the grasshoppers to devour your, crop, your crops. Why? Well, you haven't got anything to eat. No rain to grow your crops. Whatever you have. He says, I sent the grasshoppers to devour your crops. He says, or I send plagues among you. Isn't that interesting? We've been suffering a plague with this pandemic. You know, we have to ask. He says, then... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will restore their land. And this nation, the United States of America, is ripe for, for judgment. We have strayed so far away of the founding fathers' principles, biblical principles, We've strayed so far away from God that we've taken God out of the schools, out of the court systems. We've taken God out of government. We have removed God from every decision-making process of this country. So could the drought be God's doing? You know, could the, the plague, the pestilence be God's doing? Waiting for us to look up, to see him sitting on the throne. To say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. That he might restore the land. Walk with him in close fellowship and communion and he will watch over you and take care of you. But if you try to be independent of God, if you try to, to do things on your own and not, not have God in your life. 
to try, th- to, to, try to do things on your own uh, or do things your way. God will step in. And you know what? It just might hurt a bit. Here in chapter 22 with, with Israel, the Lord was calling the people to prayer. He was calling them to mourn for their sins, to weep for their sins, and to repent. The boldness that he mentions here in verse 12 was the vow of the Nazarite. Shaving the head, it was shaving the head, taking a vow of consecration. It was saying, Lord, we'll give our lives to you and we'll consecrate ourselves to you. And that's what God was asking for in here, verses, uh, verse uh, 12. God allowed the Syrians to come and he allowed the people to go through this painful siege. Why? So that they might turn to him. Instead, listen to what verse 13 says. Instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Instead of turning to God, instead of weeping and mourning and praying and repenting, Isaiah says in verse 13, you dance. You play, you kill cattle and sheep, and you feast on meat, and you drink wine. And you say, hey, let's eat and drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. Rather than turning to God, they turn to their own flesh. They said, hey, we're going to die anyway. Rather than calling on God and seeking God, repenting and turning to God, they took a defeatist attitude about the whole situation. And you know what? Sometimes we do that. Why should I pray? God's going to do what he wants anyway. Why should I pray? Things are so bad, he can't fix it. And so we just do what we want to do. Rather than calling to God and seeking God. We take the, the defeatist attitude. Hey, we're going to die or, or you know, this situation, it, it can't be helped. I might as well live it up. God doesn't care. And the defeatist attitude was fatal in these people's lives. Verse 14. Then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, notice, surely for this iniquity, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Isaiah says, the Lord has revealed this to me. He said, till the day you die, you will never be forgiven for this sin. Think of that. That was the judgment of the Lord. And this is a declaration backed up by the fact that it's an oath spoken by the Lord saying, for this iniquity, the people that the, for this iniquity that the people have committed, there, there, there's not going to be any forgiveness for this. Death is going to come. The people are going to die without having their sin forgiven. The sin here is treated like the unpardonable sin in the New Testament. So there wouldn't be any question about it being true or not. Because Isaiah finished with the words, says the Lord God of hosts. God said this. Isaiah said the Lord of heaven's armies, he asked you to weep. He asked you to mourn for your sins. He told you to shave your heads as a sign of sorrow for your sins. And he said to wear sackcloth to show you're sorry. He said, God asked you to fast. 
Instead, <coughs> you had a feast. Fasting was the right thing to do for a nation that was on the verge of disaster. But some who heard Isaiah's warning, they took it lightly. As many today, <coughs> as many today take God's warnings lightly. They don't believe what God says. They don't believe in his word. So they said, let's eat, let's drink, because tomorrow <clears throat> we're going to die. This attitude brings sure death. A sinning, unconcerned, pleasure-seeking people. That's what they were. This is the picture that verses 1 through 14 gives us. It's a Jerusalem. God's city, the valley of vision. The city of David, it's Jerusalem that turns its back on its maker, verse 11 tells us. The point is, there is a point where unrepentant presumption, where we take it for granted. When we take God for granted upon his forgiveness of sin, there's a line that you can cross where it's too late. Isaiah said, God said, till the day you die, you will never be forgiven for this sin. Can you imagine? When God speaks to us and, he, and the Holy Spirit, you know, convicts our hearts and, and, and the Holy Spirit is, is prompting us to repent and to come to Christ. And we say no every time. No, no, no. And it builds that pattern in our heart. And, and the more we say no to God, the harder our heart gets. And pretty soon there's no conviction anymore. And pretty soon you've crossed that line. And God says, I'm done. Your heart has become so hardened. For people who take sin... And God's forgiveness for granted? For this kind of mindset here where we're seeing, Isaiah doesn't offer any kind of hope. It's the sin against the Holy Spirit. And for that sin, there is no forgiveness, the Bible says. Verse 15 and 16. Thus, notice, thus the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts. Go proceed to this steward. Go to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have, that you have hewn a sepulcher or a, gra- or, or a tomb here, as he who hews uh, himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Now, in verses 15 through 25, here is the second specific sin, the unfaithful leaders. Isaiah says, This is what the Lord has said to me. He says, confront Shebna, the, the, the palace administrator, and give him this message. Who do you think you are? And what are you doing here building yourself this beautiful tomb? A monument high up on the rock. If the leaders had been faithful to the Lord and they would have called the people to repentance, there might have been hope for them. But too many of the leaders were like Shebna. They were thinking of only themselves. Now, it says here that, that uh, go to the steward Shebna. The word steward means treasurer. Shebna was second, to, uh, second in command to King Hezekiah in authority. But he used his authority and, and maybe even some of the king's money to build himself a fancy tomb. 
and to buy some chariots for himself. Shebna was not a spiritual man, and he probably sided with, with, with enemy Egypt's friends in Judah. The important families in Jerusalem, they would carve out for themselves a monument for the tombs of their family. And there was usually, it was usually carved right out of the rock, right in the cliff, and it would be pretty elaborate. It would be a pretty ornate tomb. Now, Shebna wasn't a Jew. He was a foreigner. And he probably didn't have any real family there. And yet here he is making this fancy tomb for himself. He was cutting out this tomb for himself right there in Jerusalem. So Isaiah is rebuking him for this. And notice what he says to him in 17 and 18. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, speaking to Shebna, O mighty man, and, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your, char- your glorious chariots, and shall be the shame of your master's house. Isaiah said, the Lord's going to toss you away, Shebna. He's going to grab you. He's going to roll you into a ball, and he's going to toss you far away into a barren land. And he says, that's where you're going to die. And that's where your fancy chariots are going to be destroyed, and that's where your fancy chariots are going to become useless. He says, you are a disgrace to your master. God judged Shebna by demoting him. He became secretary, according to Isaiah 36.3, disgracing him and deporting him. And it says here, he, he will eventually be tossed like a ball into a faraway country where he died. He, and he wouldn't be able to have an expensive funeral. And he wouldn't be able to be buried in his fancy tomb. Verses 19 and 20. So I will drive you out of your office. And from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to drive you out of office, Shebna. I'm going to bring you down from your high position. And then, after I do that, I'm going to call my servant Eliakim, the sign of Hilkiah, to replace you. God chose a new man. The name Eliakim means whom God appoints. And the idea is, God didn't appoint Shebna. So God's going to appoint, he will appoint Eliakim to take Shebna's place. When King Sennacherib finally got to Jerusalem with his troops, the Rabshakeh, which is not a name, it's a title, the Rabshakeh came to the wall and he started making his demands for surrender. And it was this Eliakim here who'd already replaced Shebna, who responded to Rabshakeh from the Assyrian army. Here, like in other places in the scriptures, the prophecy moves away from the immediate to the future fulfillment so that you have kind of a double fulfillment. The fulfillment here and then a yet yet future fulfillment. In other words, it's speaking of things that will happen immediately. But these things that are happening immediately are prophecy of things that are going to happen later as well in the future. So here, Eliakim becomes a type of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Shebna was a type of the Antichrist. He's he's being put down in order that Eliakim, the one that God appointed, might rule. So as he starts describing Eliakim here, we can see here that he's definitely a prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Verses 21 and 22. 
It says, I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will, sit, I will lay on his shoulder so that he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. Isaiah says that God's going to dress him in your royal robe, Shebna, and he's going give to give Eliakim your title. And he's going to give Eliakim your authority. And Eliakim's going to be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And, and Isaiah says that, that Isaiah, God says, I'm going to give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. And he's going to open doors. Shebna, Eliakim's going to open doors that no one be, will be able to close. And when he closes doors, no one's going to be able to open them. Isaiah's already told us about Jesus. Remember back in chapter 9, verse 6? The prophecy of Christ, that government will be on his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Here, in in this passage, we find that, that Eliakim is a type of Christ. Because when Jesus is speaking of himself to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, he said to John and the angel of the church of Philadelphia, These things say he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So you see, Jesus uses these very same words to describe himself in the book of Revelation while he's speaking to the church of Philadelphia. Later on, Jesus said, I have set before you an open door which no man can shut. So from a historic standpoint, as you look at the seven churches of Asia in Revelation, as, and, and you look at those churches as seven periods of church history, the church of Philadelphia is the Lord's true church that's holding to his word in the last days. Hopefully we identify ourselves with the church of Philadelphia to which the Lord said, I have set before you an open door. So Eliakim here is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, the key to the house of David. Man, it is great to know that we can put our lives in the hands of Jesus Christ who was able to close or open any door. Verse 23 and verse 24. I will fasten him, speaking of Eliakim or Christ, the prophecy of Christ, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity uh, from the cups to all the pitchers. In other words, Speaking of, of, of Jesus Christ in the future, it says that he shall be a blessing to his family. He shall bring honor to his family's name. Notice because he says, I'll drive him firmly in place like a nail in the wall. They'll give him great responsibility and he'll bring honor even to the lowliest members of his family. And that's what Jesus has done. The glory of this world does not give a man, any man real, any man real worth. It's all temporary. It's all passing. It won't last long. 
Eliakim here was compared to a nail driven into a wall, it, 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 driven, you know, it, it made secure. Eliakim was compared to a nail in a sure place to his family, who were probably many that depended on him, like a house where the vessels that had handles would be hung on the nails. And, you know, they drive these nails in, and if the cup has a handle, they would hang it on the wall. It suggests here that he's going to take good care of them, all of them. And he's going to take the responsibility of taking care of them. And he said, notice, all the vessels, not just the large vessels, not just the cups, uh, uh, not just the beautiful vessels, but the cups and the smaller vessels, even the most humble that belong to his family will be provided for him. And isn't that what Jesus has done for his family? God has provided for all the vessels. Not just the, 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 the beautiful vessels and the wealthy vessels, but the cups and the smaller vessels, even the most humble vessel that belongs to the kingdom of God. He provides for him. It's a huge resp- job and a, and a huge responsibility that, that one undertakes themselves. They don't think much about how great the load is that they try to bring on themselves when they decide to be faithful and have the people put their trust in him. But our Lord Jesus, having the key of the house of David, is like a nail in a sure place. And all the glory of his father's house hangs on him, Christ, and comes from him and depends on him. Even the lowest that belong to his church are welcome to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is able to handle all of our stresses. And you know what? Because of Christ, that person can't perish Their problems won't go unattended, no matter how heavy those problems are, if, here's the condition, their faith is hung on Christ. Let's close with verse 25. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Now, In verse 25, the Lord also says, the time will come, he says, when I'm going to pull that nail out that seems so firm. It's going to come out and fall to the ground. This is speaking of Calvary and the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. The Old Testament prophets told the people that the Messiah was coming, that he was to have a place of glory and honor. That he was to rule over the world. In Psalm 2.8, it says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And yet this wonderful Messiah and Lord who is to reign and to rule over the earth is going to be cut down, it says here in verse 25. He's going to be removed. You know, it seems like a contradiction about the Messiah, how he's going to be like a nail in the wall. He's going to be secure and he's going to take care of all the stresses of the family. And now it says that nail is going to be removed. It's going to be cut down. The nail was going to be established. It was going to be set in a solid place. And the glory of of the Lord's house would be hanging on this, this, this nail. But then it says in verse 25, this nail is going to be cut down. This nail is going to be removed and it's going to fall. Everything it supports is going to fall with it. Now that was speaking of the Jews 
and the glory of the house of Israel that was to be on the Messiah, it's going to be cut off. And Scripture tells us that the Messiah was cut off and that he was crucified. Daniel, the prophet, also predicted that the Jews would be scattered. And that's what Isaiah is predicting here. When he says, the glory of the house of Israel that was hanging on the wall, I'm sorry, hanging on the nail, shall fall and be cut off. And so the Jews were cut off. For almost 2,000 years, they were cut off. And they were scattered throughout the whole world. And then the Lord sort of puts the finishing touch on it. He says, for the Lord has spoken. And God said it twice. And as we go through Isaiah, we'll see these words, the Lord has spoken. We'll see them many more times. And we'll see that it's always used in connection to prophecy. As Isaiah is talking about things that are still future, he says, for the Lord has spoken. God has said it. That confirms the fact. In other words, if God said it, you can be sure that it's going to happen. And in this case, it's already happened. We can look and see that it did take place. The nail was cut down and removed. Jesus Christ was hung upon the cross and he was crucified. And the nation, the Jewish nation was destroyed. They were cut off. And they remained that way for almost 2,000 years. The Lord has spoken, and he did as he said. Father, we come before you, and we thank you so much for this beautiful chapter, Lord. And Father, help us to take heed of the things that were said here, God. Lord, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And Father, just as he had called for his people to seek him, to call upon him, to mourn and to weep for their sins, may we heed what he said. May we never, Lord, get that defeatist attitude. God, may we never get to that point where we say God can't do anything or won't do anything. May we not get that defeatist attitude, Lord. May we never cross that line where you say, I can't forgive, I won't forgive you. But may we be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And may we seek Him at a time where He may be found. May we call out to Him while He while we can still be heard. May we not wait any longer. But repent. Seek him in his forgiveness. So, Father, right now we just, Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that, Lord, we've been holding from you, Lord, and not allowing you to have and to change, Lord, may we 
seek that forgiveness now, God. May we repent. And Lord, may we walk in that fellowship with you and that close communion, God. And Lord, we can be sure, God, that our lives hang upon your security in our life, God. That, Lord, you are our security. You're our hope. You're the key to everything that we need. And so, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the blood that you shed for our sins, Lord. And, Lord, may we now bring glory and honor to your name, God, every day and every way. So, Father, just be with those today, this evening, Lord, as they go their way. May you bless the rest of their week. Father, we look forward once again to the time where we can gather together in your name, in your word, in your presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.